podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. In today's bonus episode, we're digging up some well-loved English major lingo and dusting it off. We're talking about critical theory and how it enhances our reading lives, starting with the feminist and gender lens. Hey, Chelsea. Hey, Sarah. This is going to be a fun bonus episode because we get to use our English major English teacher hats a little bit more. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this with you. When we were recording our episode about the awakening, we kept discussing feminist theory and how we were using it to analyze this book. And then we took a step back and thought, we should explain this and kind of discuss it in a way that helps other people apply these theories if they'd like to. Yeah, definitely. This is something that anyone can apply to their reading life. You do not have to be an English major or even, you know, a lot of people don't consider themselves readers until they're fully grown adults. So if this is something that you've never encountered, that's totally fine. We hope that this is a tool that you find useful and helpful in your reading life or maybe even in your book club, but this is not just English major stuff. Definitely not. And I think we've discussed how, for us, it did seem like theory was kept away from us until college. We didn't really encounter it in high school, but I know we both have brought critical theory into our high school classrooms as teachers and had a lot of success with that and really seen our students come alive and enjoy reading in a new way. Yeah, it's so true. I've seen so much engagement and enthusiasm when teaching lessons with critical theory. And I don't get super into like the actual theory of it with students. I obviously translate it in a high school friendly way, but they they just really get it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we'll get further into this, but one great thing about theory is that it gives you a whole new set of questions to ask about books. And asking good questions about books, I think that's what makes a great reader. I completely agree. And that, of course, makes for excellent discussions, which obviously we love on the podcast. (laughs) Obviously, yes. So let's start with a couple definitions. Chelsea, how would you define critical theory in general? Critical theory is a way to apply philosophy and ideology to literature so that you are highlighting sociocultural, historical, ideological elements in the text and allowing yourself to connect those things to, you know, modern life or historical events or it's really, I see it as a way to connect literature across a lot of different topics. I think that's so perfectly said. I'm going to have to play that for my students next time I define (laughs) theory for them. What would you add to that? I think you said it beautifully. And I think it might be helpful to highlight a difference between using theory and not using theory. So for a long time, many literature scholars believed that everything you needed to know or say or ask about a text was in the book itself. And so they really talked about literary analysis as being nothing outside the page. So they didn't consider the author's biography or background, 
the history or cultural movements happening when the book was being written. They also kind of pretended, I'm going to say, that their own ideologies and biases and cultural perspectives didn't influence their own readings. And it was this belief that if you read the book correctly, you could arrive at a universal meaning within that book, no matter who you are or when you're reading it, if you're reading it correctly, you will unlock this one particular meaning. And I do think that that's how many of us were taught to read in high school. Theory takes a completely opposite approach and it brings all of the things that they were ignoring back into the picture. So author biography can be something you consider, the cultural moment in which the book was written, the cultural moment in which the reader is experiencing the book, and different theories lean into those things in different ways. But all of that's fair game when analyzing a book. Yeah, that's put so well, super smart. I think that treating texts as having universal meaning or having some sort of special key that certain readers have to unlock is so damaging and shuts a lot of people down and turns a lot of students off to literature. And unfortunately, I still see that in schools a lot. I mean, teaching freshmen English, somewhere along the line, a lot of kids get that embedded in their heads between like fifth and eighth grade. And then they think that they're bad readers because they don't automatically get something. And that's sad to see. I think it translates into a lot of adult readers' lives. A lot of readers say they don't want to pick up classics. And as you listeners all know, we're not trying to push anyone to pick up classics. But feeling like you won't arrive at the right answer in your interpretation or your reading of the classic shouldn't be a barrier to picking up a book you might enjoy otherwise. No, and even in my own reading journey, I remember feeling just stupid in class sometimes when I wasn't fully getting a symbol or theme or I wasn't able to completely understand something. But once I had teachers who brought critical theory into the classroom, I gained such a confidence in not always having to have the right answer, but being able to explain myself and being able to explore. And I think that exploration is where this tool, I really consider it just a tool to help make me a better, happier reader, comes into play. Exploration is the perfect word to describe the reading process with critical theory. It's so much fun. I mean, it really allows you to be playful in your interpretations and to make older books relevant by applying more contemporary philosophical and ideological frameworks to the text. Definitely. Definitely. So one other thing that we've been talking a lot about, in addition to critical theory, we typically wouldn't come out and just say critical theory. Typically, what we'll say is we're using a certain lens. And so I'm wondering if you want to explain a little bit more about what a critical lens actually means. Sure. So when I think about a critical lens, as you said, they're tools. And I can choose from a set of lenses that are kind of philosophical frameworks 
to apply to a text. So today we're talking, for example, about feminist and gender studies lens. So when I use that, I will see different elements of the book or I will see the characters differently than when I use, say, a Marxist lens or a psychoanalytic lens. So there are these ways of looking at a book that bring out bring certain details to light and emphasize various elements of the book. How would you yeah. explain it? It's not like you're using this magical thing that's going to illuminate everything in the book for you, but if you are using a certain lens, certain things in the book are going to stand out to you more. You're no it's it changes what you notice. Exactly. I cannot take credit for this, but one of the other teachers who I work with has started explaining theory almost as filters because that's so in the students' language. They they know how when you put different filters on images, different colors pop out or it highlights different things about the image. And I think that's a really great metaphor. Although we continue to use the word or the term lens I think that image of a a filter, applying a filter to a picture and seeing different things pop is a great metaphor for how theory works. Oh yeah, I love that. I think that's such a great one. I've seen teachers talk about like different colored sunglasses lenses, like if you have a rose tint, you'll see it. But I think the concept of a filter makes a lot of sense on so many different levels. I really like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. I I think that was really smart. (laughs) And again, it wasn't my idea. (laughs) So today we are talking about the feminist lens or gender lens, and we hinted about it in our previous episode. So this means when we're using this lens that we are noticing how gender operates in a text. Yes, that is perfectly said. This is one that many readers probably apply quite naturally. They're looking at the way men and women interact with each other in a book. They're looking at power dynamics between genders in a book. They're looking at the way the characters perform their gender or refuse to perform their gender. That comes, as I said, I think naturally for for some readers. But this theory allows us to ask very specific questions about the book's representation of gender. And I think it might be important to define how gender theorists explain gender. It's, yeah, the feminist lens and gender lens, um, certain literary critics will use one or the other depending on, you know, how encompassing they believe those terms are. Gender lenses may be the more updated version and certain theorists have been trying to figure out a way to be more inclusive when talking about gender and talking about gender as a social construct rather than something internal or um, talking about how the gender binary does not necessarily fit everyone and how we can talk about literature and talk about the gender binary in an updated way that doesn't exclude people from the conversation. When you mentioned that many theorists or really all feminist and gender studies theorists view gender as a social construct, that to me is key to understanding how this 
can be applied to texts and to life. And so this is the idea that all of the traits that we typically associate with masculinity and femininity are not intrinsically associated with any particular biological sex, but that our society has implicitly agreed that these are the qualities associated with each gender. So we could list a lot of stereotypes, but I think one I talk about a lot with my students is, okay, we tend to associate masculinity with being assertive, whereas we associate femininity with being more passive or submissive. And it doesn't mean that those things are true for everyone or true for anyone, but that our culture and our society have linked those terms together. I do the same thing in my classroom. (laughs) Um, Typically, we'll make a list of stereotypes and then have a conversation about how, you know, sometimes we do fit a stereotype and sometimes we don't. And teenagers especially are so aware of stereotypes and fitting certain roles and where they don't fit that it ends up being a great conversation. But then having the next step to say, of course people are more complicated than this and stories are more complicated than this is essential when we're talking about this lens. Yeah, I try to point out to my students too that just because something is a social construct, that doesn't mean that you don't feel the real effects of that. And I tell them, you know, money is a social construct. There's nothing intrinsically real about a $10 bill equaling a certain monetary amount that can get you a particular good or product. We just all have agreed that that piece of paper means that. And so social constructs have very real impacts on our lives, which is important to acknowledge. We're just saying there's not anything necessarily natural or intrinsic about these ideas. Definitely. So once we've established that, then we can start asking questions that illuminate how those social constructs affect characters, how they affect plots, how they affect our own reading of texts, and we can see how these things are at play in the short story that we're reading, or the poem, or the book. So let's maybe just pick out a few of these typical questions that you can ask with the feminist or gender lens. And we can sort of think of Emma and the awakening because we've talked about those so far and show how maybe we'll apply these as readers. That sounds great. So one of the first questions that feminist theorists started asking was about the power relationships between men and women in life and in texts. So within a book, who has the power and what kind of power do they have? For example, in Emma, Mr. Knightley, because he is a wealthy man, has the power to correct Emma when she misbehaves, according to him, to speak to her in a manner that kind of puts her in her place. Emma's father has financial power over her. He owns the home she lives in, and 
because of that, she has to kind of cater to his whims. She loves him too. All of this is nuanced, but these are the types of questions that we might apply. But we could also say that Emma has certain powers because of her femininity. She has power over Mr. Knightley. She has power to refuse him. It's a different type of power than the male characters in the text, but there's a certain feminine power there as well. Yeah, and uh, something I like to pay attention to as well is how the power dynamics change from the beginning of the book to the end of the book or even in each scene. I think that sometimes it's easier to map out when it's a scene with a lot of dialogue, but you can almost see where the power swings back and forth like a pendulum. And that's always something that's really fun to notice and how the author shows who's more powerful in this instance than the other. Yes, absolutely. I think we see a lot of that in The Awakening, the way the power shifts back and forth between Mr. and Mrs. Pontillier in their conversations with each other. Another question to ask is, especially if you sort of have an idea of, okay, well, these are traditionally masculine traits, these are traditionally feminine traits, is how do the characters embody or deny these traits? So in the example of Emma, she's she's really bossy, and that might be seen as a traditionally masculine trait, but she is rather domineering and she shows a lot of sort of leadership um but she also embodies some feminine traits she is focused on matrimony which is seen as more of a traditionally female role and she is focused on romance and so we can see how she takes on some traditional feminine traits and then she rejects others Yeah, absolutely. Edna, too, as much as she rejects certain stereotypically feminine traits, for example, she says that she's not a mother woman. She is not particularly tender or maternal towards her children. She is not faithful or devoted to her husband. She is in touch with her sexual desires, which tends to be associated more with masculinity. However, as you mentioned very astutely in our episode on The Awakening, she's also very emotional. And the male characters in The Awakening are extremely rational. And I think that is a very common stereotyped binary between masculinity and femininity, that the masculine is the rational and the feminine is the emotional. And I do think it's fun to talk about these two books with this theory because they're both written by women authors, which not always, but tends to mean that the female characters are more nuanced and complex, especially when we're talking about older texts. Feminist and gender studies theorists have looked at a lot of classic works written by men, and there really is a pattern of there only being a couple different appropriate ways to be feminine in classics written by men, whereas these books written by women, even though they're much older, have some complexity and nuance that is maybe 
surprising for the time period, or at least counter to what we see in many classics written by men. So true. And you bring up a great point that with this lens, the book doesn't have to be explicitly considered a feminist book in order for you to apply this lens to it. Often it's a little bit easier. So for example, Jane Eyre is considered an iconic feminist work and using this lens with Jane Eyre is like... <laughs> Easy <it's> peasy. Just, <laughs> yeah, it's it's just one of the easier works to do this with, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a feminist text in order to notice these things going on. And it doesn't even have to be focused on the feminine or the female characters. Toxic masculinity, major component in our modern conversations about feminism now, and the way that toxic masculinity and stereotypes negatively impact men as well, that can totally be analyzed within literature. And I think that it's important to do that as well. Oh, absolutely. I often think analyzing male characters in literature and what constitutes masculinity in a particular text is sometimes not necessarily more enjoyable or more fruitful, but leads to more... It just leads to very rich conversations. I, I shouldn't even compare them. One is not better or worse or more or less than the other. It's just often I think we do focus on the femininity of characters and we don't talk a lot about the social construct of masculinity. And that is a really important conversation as well. Sometimes analyzing really misogynistic texts with this lens is really fun because you get to get really critical in an academic and, I don't know, fruitful way. It makes you feel empowered to take a look at a text that depicts women or men in a way that doesn't feel modern or progressive and poke holes in what the text is doing. And it really enhances my own reading experience for books that I might not like otherwise. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there is just, I think, a part of human nature that we like to be a little self-righteous sometimes. And oh, yes. this allows us to do that completely. <laughs> totally. That brings us to a good question that this doesn't just have to be about individual characters, but I like asking questions about the patriarchy in general. And this might depend certain texts, especially from different parts of the world, might not operate under a patriarchal structure. Different cultures have matriarchal structures or something different. But in terms of especially works coming out of um, the US or Great Britain, we see a very clear patriarchy and we see structures that are set up to operate that way. So Asking what the work reveals about the operations of the patriarchy, whether that is economic or political or psychological, I think leads to some really fruitful discussions that come outside of just how does this character act and allow us to really analyze society in general, which is so fun. Both Emma and The Awakening are really good books to ask that question about as well. With The Awakening, we see many different workings of the patriarchy. I think the psychological to me is the most interesting in that particular book, the way Mr. Pontillier expects certain attitudes from Edna and tries to enforce those attitudes upon her by 
scolding her when she behaves certain ways and praising her when she behaves in ways that he finds appropriate. It's really fascinating because a lot of works do talk about the economic workings of patriarchy, which are really important and relevant. But some of these subtler ways we see maybe less often, and it's really fun to examine them. It is. And I think that it allows us to say this is how things operated in that time period. So it allows us to get a little historical. And then it offers such a bridge to say this is how they still operate today. And I always think that making modern connections whenever we can is super helpful as a reader. Oh, I completely agree. It makes the books more relatable and relevant, but also it shows us why some classics have stuck around for so long because they offer these modern connections or modern insights that are surprising to us. It's also important to note that while much of feminist and gender studies theories are looking at the problems associated with gender norms and patriarchy and gendered behavior, we can also look for moments to celebrate by using this lens. So looking at connections between women and these elements of sisterhood and connectivity are super important in A Room of One's Own, the great feminist text by Virginia Woolf. She comments on how women in books written by men never seem to have other women in their lives. They just don't have female friends. The modern update of that would be the Bechdel test, which is a question that People ask typically about film, but you can ask it about books as well, which is, does the work have more than one female character in it? And two, do those two female characters ever speak to each other? And three, when they speak to each other, do they talk about anything other than a man or their relationships? Most movies don't pass the Bechdel test, which is pretty shocking, So when you do find a work, whether it's a TV series or a film or a book that celebrates sisterhood and female friendship, that is a really fun text to apply feminist and gender studies lens to. Agreed. And I think to your point about the Bechdel test in film and movies, we just like how uh, you mentioned when male authors are writing female characters it just doesn't it often doesn't ring true I think that's so true of filmmakers too and that's why we see a call for more female filmmakers and more experiences on the screen because there's there is an authenticity there and then that's another thing to celebrate is either seminal texts by women that really contributed something to literary history or contributed something to film that you know made a mark and they don't have to be award-winning texts in order to do so but just that sort of made their stamp in literature and in time that's another fun thing to really celebrate oh absolutely I love looking at how female authors are influenced by the female authors who came before them and common 
tropes and symbols and ideas that we see really being part of a conversation between texts by women. Yeah, I love the way you put that, that there's a conversation between texts. That's especially what we're trying to get at with our pairings when we're pairing these modern contemporary books with the classics is that they're in conversation with each other and using these lenses allows us to bring that conversation out, I think, in some really fun ways. That's so true. I hadn't really thought about that until we started this conversation, but I think it's really through critical lenses that we're able to see kind of innovative connections between books that we might not notice otherwise. In addition to allowing readers to get more out of an individual text, I do think it allows you to see this larger, broader conversation happening in the world of literature. So if readers would like to start applying some of these things a little bit more into their reading life, what are some recommendations that you have if they're enthusiastic about critical lenses and would like to see how feminist theory or the gender lens applies in their books? First, I would suggest keeping a couple of questions in your back pocket, either mentally or sometimes I, like with my students, or I'll do this myself, I'll keep a running list of questions on the title page of the book that I'm reading. So if I get to a certain part where femininity is being described in a really interesting way, or one of the male characters does something that is so out of the norm of the typically masculine I'll write a question in the beginning of my book, like, how is Kate Chopin defying masculinity in this book? And then I'll remember to keep asking that question as I read. A large part of it is not looking for answers right away, but asking questions as you read. That's a great suggestion. Something else that readers could do aside from asking questions or aside from annotating is after they've read, um, take a look at some author interviews and see what the author says about their work and about the themes and the characters. I think that's a great way to get some illumination. And I think that taking the questions from the title page of your book or your note card or bookmark to a book club or, you know, a friend who's read the book can really add to a vibrant discussion. That's such a good point. I think these questions are so fruitful for discussion because they just don't lend themselves to single answers. There's so much complexity to every single question that they allow for really lengthy, really in-depth conversations. I love that idea of taking these questions to a book club or to a friend who's read read the book. So book club can be great, but sometimes once you get into the rhythm of talking about books with each other, it can fall into the same pattern of, you know, first we talk a little bit about the plot and then we talk about what we didn't like and then, you know, we eat some snacks and we're done, right? <laughs> <laughs> you forgot the wine, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... If you do want to sort of push your book club to go a little bit deeper, I think a great thing would be to bring these questions in to book club. And you don't have to do it in a super, like, English teacher way. You don't have to be like, so, everyone, today we're learning about critical theory. You don't. You can just ask one of the questions about, you know, what did you think of this character's 
role as a mother or a role her role as a sister or what did you think of this character interacting with this other one in terms of their power and gender you can do it in a subtle way that isn't doesn't feel like you're taking everyone to school yeah and I think what is also great about those questions is that they allow us to share a little bit more about our own worldviews and perspectives on these questions as applied to real life in a way that maybe we wouldn't jump right to that conversation without the book as a medium. I might not sit down with a group of friends and just say, so what do you think about power as it relates to gender? Go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But if you can talk about it within the context of a book, you can start to think about it within the context of your life and you get to learn a little bit more about your friend's perspectives on these really important questions and you get to challenge your own thinking a little bit. I think that is just as important is it's not just about asking the question to to come up with an answer that feels right to you. It's about hearing what other people how other people are interpreting a book or thinking about gender and maybe learning that, oh, wow, I have a little bit of a blind spot or a bias here. That, I think, is something I really always have enjoyed about being in classes and even about teaching because my students will interpret books in completely different ways than I do And I will have to think, oh, I kind of jumped the gun. I took this thing I believe to be true about life and brought it into the book in a way that my students didn't do because they have different experiences than me. I absolutely love what you said. And I think that that's part of the power of literature is that it does allow us in a really safe way to explore our own biases and our own thoughts and blind spots and... Yeah, I think discussing that is so powerful. And as we do more episodes on individual lenses and theories, we'll talk about how they intersect and how that intersectionalism really helps us as readers and humans in the world. And I think that that's going to be really powerful too. Yeah, I think that's so important. And contemporary theorists are really acknowledging in a way that I think is necessary, that there are intersections here. So within looking at gender, it's hard to look at gender and not also ask questions about class or not also ask questions about race. And that is super important. So we'll definitely be building on this when we bring in other theories. This was really fun to talk about for today. And this is certainly one of my favorite lenses just because I tend to gravitate towards feminist texts and I know that you do too so I'm glad that we were able to start with this and we'll we'll definitely branch out from our comfort zones as we go absolutely and we're recording this on International Women's Day and we intentionally wanted to get this particular episode out for Women's History Month but we will for sure be expanding on these theoretical lenses and dropping some more questions you can ask about your reading 
over the next few weeks and months. For more Classic Lit enthusiasm and podcast news, follow us on Instagram at Novel Pairings Pod or on Twitter at Novel Pairings. We would love to know whether you pick up Emma, The Awakening, or any of the books that we mentioned today, so feel free to tag us if you post about it on social media. Tell your friends about the Novel Pairings podcast by writing a review on Apple Podcasts or by sharing our most recent episode on social media. We declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How soon one tires of anything than of a book. We'll be back soon with an episode on The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro.